0: Today's reading um, comes from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, and it reads, Shall not all these take up their taunts against him, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of people shall plunder you for their blood of, for the blood of man, rather, and violence to the earth, to cities, and all to dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have d- devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and from the beam, I'm sorry, from the beam, the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it, but the Lord in his holy temple i 'm sorry, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to holy trinity church i 'm sully i 'm one of the pastors here at the church and i'm uh, i 'm always uh, I'm always thankful uh, for Sunday mornings that we get to gather, open up God's Word together. Uh, Thanks to the worship team who led us this morning in worship. uh, You know, worship has a way of uh, really setting a tone for our time together. Uh, Music really in general does that. It conjures up different emotions. It helps prepare us for what's ahead. Today we're continuing in our sermon series uh, through the book of Habakkuk. And today, uh, what we just read a few moments ago, we could say is, in a way, preparing us for the coming justice of God. Uh, If we continue with this idea of music, we might even call what we just read a prelude to the coming justice of God. A prelude, it's the music that plays before uh, an event begins. It's the music that plays before our worship services begin. It helps us transition into this space. You know, music, it it has a way of conjuring up these different emotions. I I don't know if you've been uh, on Spotify lately and you try to set a playlist, maybe for a dinner party you're having. You can actually go in and set a playlist uh, by the different moods that you want to set. When I'm trying to get my kids to get ready for bed, I'll put on soft piano music to get us ready uh, to go to bed, to transition us. Well, this prelude to the coming of uh, the justice of God, it has some different chords in it. There's some chords of minor chords that speak of the coming ju- uh, judgment on the wicked. But there's also some major chords in there, tucked in, in among these minor chords, that remind us of God's character. There is something heavy about what we just read. Uh, these minor chords, as I mentioned, they remind us that God's justice is coming. But these major chords that I've mentioned, they, they're these reminders of God's character. If I were to give a title to the sermon today, I'd I'd simply call it the the sound of God's coming justice. It's made up of the minor chords of our lament and our cry for renewal, but it's also made up of these major chords of God's character and and goodness, his his glory and his holiness. Today, as we walk through our passage, I I hope this prelude to the coming justice of God, it would bring uh, comfort to some of us. the righteous, and, and yet it might actually be a cause for concern for others. But as we walk through this passage today, I hope that, that we might actually find ourselves uh, being able to join with the choir that is singing this prelude to the coming justice of God. So would you join with me as we begin our time in, in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Gracious Father, this morning we need your mercy. Father, we come before you because we are we are heavy, burdened by, Lord, the activities of our week that just passed, the anxieties of the week ahead. And Father, we need, a, we need your help this morning to hear from you, to pause, to, to allow the anxieties of the coming week to be set aside for a moment and for us to hear clearly from you. Father, I ask today that as we open up your word that, that Father, you would uh, speak truth, that Father, what is hard uh, to hear, that we would hear it. Um, But Father, I pray that the reminder of your character, that it would come through clearly as well, that Father, those who are needing comfort this morning, who are crying for renewal would would be comforted by the reminder of your promise of of justice. But Father, I pray that for some of us, there might actually be a a cause for concern this morning, a, a reason to turn from our wicked ways and repent and turn to you. So Father, we trust in the work of your spirit through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I can't keep, uh, I can't keep a beat to save my life. It's just a struggle I have. Ironically, I was the drum major for my high school marching band. You can imagine, it was a disaster. Uh, couldn't keep a beat uh, for the, those who were uh, marching and playing their instruments. Well, even though I have some struggles keeping a beat, I can find the rhythm to the book of Habakkuk, the rhythm not only of the book of Habakkuk, but the rhythm of our own passage today is so clear that we can't miss it. There's this back and forth rhythm throughout the book of Habakkuk. The prophet speaks and then God speaks. The prophet responds and then God responds. If you're joining us for the first time today, Habakkuk is this interesting prophet. Normally a prophet is someone who has given a word from God to proclaim to the people of God. But in this book, the prophet is actually the one speaking to God, bringing his questions and his anxieties before God. Earlier on in the the book, we saw the prophet coming before the Lord and asking him, are you going to do anything about the violence around me? Are you going to do anything about the injustice in the world? God responded and said, I'm going to do something that's going to astound you. He says that I'm going to raise up an even more wicked people, the the Chaldeans, to punish those in Judah. To punish the people of God for their wickedness. Well, this only raises more questions for the prophet Habakkuk. And in chapter, uh, in in the end of chapter one, he speaks again. And he asks a very vulnerable question, a very direct question. He gets to the heart of the issue, his anxiety, and he says, God, are you really who you say you are? Are you the God who is going to deal with violence and justice? Are, Are you truly the righteous one? Are you not from everlasting? It's a question that. I'm so thankful, the prophet asks. It's a question I can, I can relate with. It's a question that I think rises up in us every time we hear of another, another shooting in our city. It's a question that rises up in us when we get that phone call from a doctor with unsettling news, or maybe when a relationship falls apart, when work becomes overwhelming and we can, we can begin to doubt that God is who he says he is. Well, the prophet, he asks the question that we all are wondering. God, are you truly who you say you are? We find ourselves this morning uh, in God's response to this question. God is answering very clearly the question that Habakkuk has asked. Today in our our passage, we, we find that God is not only answering the question around whether he will do anything about the injustice in the world, but he's also dealing with this question around his character. His response to Habakkuk's cry for renewal is not simply a promise to deal with justice, but it's a promise that his character has not changed. As I said a moment ago, there's a rhythm to the book of Habakkuk, and there's also a pretty clear rhythm to our own passage today, the very particular passage we read. You may have noticed that there's these five woe statements repeated throughout the passage, these warning statements about what is to come. These woe statements make it clear that God's purpose is to deal with injustice, it's inevitable, it's coming. But among these woe statements, there are these two other statements that we find, one in verse 14 and the other in verse 20. And they speak not about what God is going to do, but rather about his character, his glory, and his holiness. Saying that, yes, justice is coming, but I want you to see that this promise of justice It's really undergirded by the promise of his character, which is unchanging. So with this structure in mind, what I'd like to do is is group our passage into two parts. We're going to look at the first three woe statements together, and then we'll look at the last two, the fourth and fifth woe statements together. And really what I want to show you today is that God's glory and his holiness will one day be undeniable. It might be hard to believe it now, but one day it'll be unquestionable. So let's begin with those first three woe statements. Uh, As we begin uh, these three woe statements, I can't help but be amazed every time that I begin to, uh, at the end of the day when Laura and I have have put our kids to bed and we go about the work of trying to put our house back in order, trying to clean up the mess that we've created throughout the day, and I will probably turn and begin to put some books on the shelf, our kids' books, and it may take me a moment or two, a minute or two, and I turn around and I realize that somehow Laura has had a burst of energy and has done like two or three times as much work as I've done in about a minute or two. It's like this force of being able to put everything back in place where it's supposed to go, cleaning up the mess of the day. In our first three woe statements, we get this picture of God's glory being this unstoppable force of putting things back in order, cleaning up the mess of the world. The things that have been stolen are returned. The people who have been beaten down and oppressed are lifted up. Look, uh, look with me at this first woe statement, verse six. It says, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This last week, we had some of our interns and our residents at the church, they're actually uh, working through uh, the book of Habakkuk with us, with the pastoral team, and they were looking at this passage and we asked the question, what do you think is the tone that's really coming through in all of this? And all of the interns, all of the the residents, they agreed that the tone of the passage is one of kind of a foreboding uh, mood. I don't know really what comes to mind when you think of foreboding, but it's, it's just this anticipation that something is about to happen, something that, that should trouble us. And you know how movies and TV shows have a way of kind of beginning to hint towards something, something bad is about to happen. The music turns ominous. Things become clear that something's about to pop out around the corner, and you can feel this foreboding sense. Well, this woe statement is, is really a warning. It's a warning that goes forth to those who heap up what is not theirs, the stealing from others. It's a warning that goes before them that something troubling is about to happen to them if they don't change their ways. They have stolen things and they have taken from others. They have plundered many nations. Really, the context here is that we're speaking about the Chaldeans, those who, uh, who are going to come up and, and punish the wicked amongst Judah. Judah. And God is saying that, that, yes, I'm going to deal with their wickedness too, that what they have done to plunder nations, I'm going to hold them accountable. The major imagery uh, in this passage or the, con- uh, the idea here is this financial mismanagement or really the extortion, uh, taking from those uh, what is uh, not their own. It, if uh, you read the NIV's translation, it really comes through this idea of the stealing, the accumulating wealth for themselves. It, it reads, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake, uh, not wake up and make you tremble? Most uh, economic news goes way over my head, um, but I usually try to follow along on, uh, it's the uh, New York Times, the daily podcast, and maybe you listened to that podcast as well, but they, they did an episode this last week on a, on a company in, in China that is a real estate company, Evergrande, I think it's called, and uh, they've had some uh, issues lately. Their whole model of business has been to buy, to borrow money, to buy land, and then they use that land that they borrowed money for to uh, leverage it for more land, and, and they just continue to grow as the the real estate market booms, they continue to acquire and they keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. And now that the real estate uh, market is beginning to slow down in China, the creditors are coming. They're coming to, to call on uh, the money that's owed to them. And if they default on their loans, they're gonna have this crippling effect, ripple effect across the global economy. And it's got a lot of people pretty nervous. This passage, it, it's saying that those who heap up what is not their own, who take what is not their own one day, their creditors are going to rise up. They're going to make them tremble. I know it's easy probably to think about you know, people stealing these days as maybe corporate you know, uh, big institutions doing it. But if we were to draw this a little closer to home, I, I think that this idea of, of stealing, of taking what is not our own, is, is maybe a little bit more prevalent than we realize I'm sure you may not be going to your neighbor's house and stealing something from their shelf and taking it for yourself, but I think there's some other ways that we live our life that steals from others. Our culture that's, that wants things quickly and cheaply might actually be causing some people to be robbed of, you know, earnings or wages that they deserve. Maybe it's uh, this wasteful habits that we have uh, that is actually stealing from future generations, our kids' generation, from being able to swim in Lake Michigan without fear of disease. I, I'm not sure, but I, my point is that stealing, keeping up what is not our own, finding comfort and wealth at the cost of someone else, it can take a lot of different forms. But it's never right. And God sees it, and God's going to hold us accountable. God's judgment is coming, and when it comes, it's going to be this reversal, this great reversal of those who have been plundered, those who have been stolen from and oppressed, well, they're going to be restored. They're going to be the ones lifted up on that day. But woe to the one who lives a life that seeks wealth for themselves by taking advantage of another this theme of, of God's judgment coming and justice coming as a, an act of reversal, of turning things around on its head, well, it continues into the second woe statement. This is in verse nine. We move from the individual heaping up wealth to uh, the home. Look at verse nine. It says, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. But the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Here the reversal is this idea of a reversal of security. We move, as I said, from an individual to, uh, to the home and it, it's saying that there are some who have sought security. They've built their homes up high from the reach of, of harm. And in the end, they are going to be the ones who are endangered. Now, the problem here isn't just that people have sought security. There's nothing wrong with seeking security, but it's the way in which they've gone about it. This unjust way of actually cutting off other people, thinking that, that they deserve better than others. It's this idea that uh, they deserve some kind of privilege or some type of opportunity that others don't deserve. In the end, they are the ones who are actually forfeiting their life. The, the text here is, I think, speaking to something that is happening in our culture right now. How good it is that right now we live in a time where we are beginning to reveal how our culture has far too long thought that some people based on their skin color for some reason should have some advantage than others should find themselves with uh, better housing man it, our city we John and I were uh, down in Arizona this last week, and we were at a preaching workshop, and we were talking to people about their perception of chicago and, and one of the things that comes across is just how divided segregated our city is how how there's housing disparities. Man, this is our own city, and one day it says that this will all be reversed, that those who have found advantage at the cost of someone else, it's going to be be turned around. Going along with this idea of reversal, it actually says that this home, the, the very material that the homes are built out of are going to turn on the inhabitants and stand as witnesses against them heaping shame upon them. The, the, the beams of the woodwork are going to cry out against them. The stones are going to cry out against them. They will be found guilty. There's that Churchill quote that says that uh, we shape our buildings and they, then they shape us uh, f- thereafter. And it's this idea that uh, we have built homes sometimes, built safety, security by taking advantage of others or actually doing it, at, at disadvantaging others. And and God says, I see it. And it's going to have lasting impact on you. God's justice is coming. And it's going to reverse this wrong in the world. It, like I said, it's speaking of this coming ju- uh, judgment. a Judgment on those who, who seek wealth for themselves, who actually seek uh, homes and, and safety in unjust ways. It seems as if sin, it, it's so pervasive. It's, it's infected our own hearts It's infected our homes. The passage presses on even further to say that it's actually infected our whole towns, our whole city. It might be hard now to see it, but one day God's glory is going to be undeniable. The very material that we build our homes out of will make sure we know it. I want us to look at this final, the third woe statement in this first section, how it just speaks of sin, the the ruinous effects of sin press out. Even from our hearts, to our families, to our society. Verse twelve says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood, and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? This final woe statement, it's not just for city planners. It's it's a warning against us collectively, our collective building of culture, our city. The soil, where, excuse me, the, the society that we build, it, it actually is also infected with sin. Some, I think, want to believe that sin is just a personal problem, a personal issue, or maybe it's our own prejudices or our wrongful thinking, our wrongful actions, but sin is far more pervasive and harmful than that. It it moves from the heart and it ruins and breaks our homes and it breaks our cities. There are systemic problems in our institutions and in our society. And God says, I'm going to deal with all of it. This last week, I uh, realized that the plant in my office hadn't been watered in a while. The the soil had become hard and cracked. And and as I poured water over the soil, I, I watched as the water, it seeped into every crevice, every crack in the soil. It began to soften the soil and really seep into everything. Sin, it has that same effect. It seeps into everything, our whole experience, the whole world. And when we begin to see that sin's ruinous effects on every part of our life, on every aspect of our life, it can be so overwhelming. It can be paralyzing at times. It can cause us to really just to turn to tears, to to weeping, to, to crying out, Lord, bring about renewal. This is where the prophet Habakkuk is at. He's at a point where he has realized that sin is just pressed out into every aspect. Everywhere he can look, sin has had a a terrible effect, distorting reality. And he's asked God, are you going to do anything about it? And God's response, it sounds like a a war drum beating, a definitive answer that yes, I'm going to deal with injustice. The wicked will be held accountable. God promises Habakkuk that that justice, this great reversal of wrong, is coming. But his promise comes with the assurance, or it comes with this undergirding of his character. You see, God's promise of bringing about justice in the world, it's not delivered to us in a flimsy cardboard box. It comes to us in a steel-enforced, safe what I mean by that is that, yes, God is responding with this clarity of, yes, I'm going to deal with justice, but he does it with the backdrop of saying, you can have assurance that this justice is coming because of who I am. You have questioned, am I from everlasting? Am I righteous? Well, he says here in verse 14, that my glory, it will ensure that justice comes. Look at verse 14, It's beautiful Reminder of God's glory. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Man, up to this point, it seems as if sin's effect has just pressed into everything, continuing to expand outward, seeping into every aspect of our life. It's corrupted our hearts, broken our homes. It's it's caused violence in our cities. But there is this tidal wave of God's glory that is going to wash over our city it's going to flood into our homes and into our hearts, and it, it's going to bring about a great reversal. If sin is pervasive, saturating everything then God's glory is going to be even more saturating and pervasive, pushing out the wrong effects of sin. God's glory will be far stronger. I don't know if you've been to Niagara Falls, but it's a beautiful sight. It's amazing and when you get up close to it, there's this thunderous noise of water cascading over the side and it's rushing constantly and it's kind of deafening. For those who are crying out to God, this cry for renewal, God responds and says, do you hear, do you hear the the rushing sound of my glory? It's coming with a thundering deafness that says my glory is going to rush over and it will cover the whole earth just as the waters cover the sea. You might ask, how does God comfort Habakkuk? How does God respond and try to put Habakkuk at ease? He says, I wanna remind you of my promise of justice, but I wanna even more so remind you of my character, that my glory is going to ensure this promise. God's glory, it has the, a way of reversing the wrong, in the next two woe statements, the fourth and fifth woe statements, we, we turn now and see the revealing power of God's holiness. If you look in, in the text with me uh, for just a moment, these last two woe statements, they, they begin to expose the wrong ways in which we have degraded the image of God. The verse 15, if you have your Bibles, I'd, I'd like you to have them open and, and look at the passage. It says in verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourselves and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and the violence of the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. There's a disturbing Thing that's being reported on this last week by the BBC in the UK. It's this idea of, or this thing that's happening called needle spiking. It's this horrible thing where people are using small needles in, in crowded places to actually drug other people. They're seeing this on, on the rise, and it's in order to be able to take advantage of someone else, to sexually assault individuals. This is the type of situation that is being spoken about in verse 15. There are people who try to cause others to be drunk so as to gaze at their nakedness, to sexually assault them. We live in the era of of Me Too that's raising the voices of victims. It's a movement trying to expose the, uh, the unjust power dynamics and exposing the shame of people who use power dynamics to take advantage of others. Well, this passage, it has a very clear answer. It says, uh, it's this imagery of a cup, the cup that's been used to try to cause people to be drunk, to take advantage of them. Well, the cup of God's wrath is in his right hand and it will come around those who take advantage of another and it will be poured out upon them. They will drink and they will be the ones who are drunk, whose shame will be exposed. We just read a second ago, drink yourselves and show your uncircumcision. They are the ones who will be left ashamed and naked in the end. If you're here this morning and you don't uh, claim to be a a follower of God, a Christian, uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, But if you're here and and you also agree that you long for a day, long for a day that uh, women no longer have to worry about being harassed in the workplace, if you long for a a day when uh, the powerful and rich are held accountable for sexual assault, or maybe simply you just long for a day when... Our wives, our our sisters, our, our daughters no longer have to worry about being raped. And I want to tell you about a God who cares about what you care about, who cares deeply about this, who doesn't only find it disgusting and disturbing, but takes it as a personal assault. You see, men and women, we are created in the image of God, and that means that if someone takes advantage and degrades another human, it is a degrading of the image of God. God will not tolerate the belittling or the degrading of his image in the world. He will pour forth a justice that is thorough, that is overwhelming and lasting. A God who cares about this is, is going to expose it and make it known. God's desire to hold accountable anyone who degrades the image of God, it it's intensifies and has actually carried forward into the final woe statement. Look there with me, verse 18. It moves from the imagery of sexual assault to the imagery of idolatry. Verse 18, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who, seeks to a wooden, who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. Think for a moment about how, offense, how offended you would be if you walked into your boss one day and you said, I got to take a couple of days off of work. You think of yourself as someone pretty uh, you know, vital to your team. You've spent some years studying. You've got a couple of degrees. You, you've had a couple of years in this job. You think that you know, you're pretty specialized in what you do and your boss tells you, oh, don't worry about it. I'm gonna, I'll have my six-year-old son come in and stand in for you. You'd, you would think to yourself, Wait, what? You think a child can do what I do? That would be pretty offensive. Idolatry is saying to God that you think something lesser can do what he can do. Uh, you probably don't have a wooden object or something made of gold in your home that you're asking to speak to you. But, but man, there are other ways that we create idols. We like the security that our money brings us. We like the sense of identity that our jobs can provide. We certainly like the, the way that our certain relationships can provide love and comfort that we long for. When we make an idol out of these things, it's like we are saying to God, we believe that these things can do what you can do. It's a belittling of who God is, the image of God. And God, he, he says, I'm not going to tolerate a belittling of who I am. A world that is saturated by violence. It needs the roaring sound of God's coming glory. But a world that speaks and assaults the image, speaks against and assaults the image of God, well, it needs the deafening silence that comes from the holiness of God. Verse 20, it's, it's one of this, this second kind of uh, statement about God's character that is different than these woe statements. It it's begins with a conjunction, but it, it it's a, connotates uh, some kind of disjunction or comparison or contrast. It says, you know, while the world is, is doing uh, these terrible things, uh, degrading my image, there's a God who uh, remains holy. Verse 20, it says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. In contrast to the fools who call out to their idols, arise, speak, God says that before his holy temple, the whole earth will fall silent. Habakkuk, who is struggling to believe that God was going to keep his promise of justice, he's given a clear answer to that question. Yes, justice is coming, and it's going to be thorough. But he's also given a reminder of the character of God, that his holiness is what is going to ensure that God's justice is going to come about. We've seen that God's glory has the power to reverse. We've seen that God's holiness has the power to reveal, to expose the wrong in the world. And this morning, I, I want to just uh, press this in upon you for a moment that for, for some who are just longing for uh, discouraged by, by a season of waiting for God's justice to come about, I, I want to comfort you with the comfort that God gives Habakkuk, a reminder of his promise, but a, more so a reminder of his character. His glory and his holiness will one day be undeniable. But for others here this morning that, that this this prelude to the coming justice of God sounds less like music and more like misery, maybe more of a cause for concern for you. I I simply would ask that you would consider this morning the way in which you live. Is, Is it actually a way that is going to be causing you future judgment or is it a way in which you can find that God's coming justice is a comfort to you? If there is breath in your lungs, there is time to turn to the living God that there is time to turn away from seeking wealth by taking advantage of others. There's still time to uh, find our security, not in the things that we can build with our hands, but rather security in the Lord. There is still time, if there's breath in your lungs, to turn from our idols and turn to the living God, the one who doesn't need to be spoken to, but the one who will demand silence before us, a, a God who will provide all that we need. And so I just ask you today that this prelude this, this prelude that is meant to prepare us, uh, would it actually come forward, sound forward to you to help prepare you uh, to be ready for the coming justice of God? But as we finish this morning, I want to return to the beginning. I want to end at the beginning of our passage. These five woe statements that are spoken, they're spoken by God to the prophet. But I want you to notice actually who God says will actually speak these woe statements, these warnings. Look back at the beginning of our passage. Verse six, it begins like this. It says, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and then goes into those woe statements. At first, we might not really fully understand by its own who these pronouns are referring to. Who who is this speaking of? Well, We have to go back another verse to to really understand who God is, is speaking about here. Just in the verse previous, we read about the Chaldeans who are going to come up and who are the ones who are wicked and and are actually plundering other nations, collecting them for themselves and treating them harshly. God says, shall not all these, referring to the nations who are being collected up, who are being trampled upon, shall not all these rise up and taunt the Chaldeans and speak to them these warnings? It hits those who are oppressed, those who are captive, who God says will actually play a role in pronouncing the coming justice of God. They will rise up and taunt against the nations more powerful than them, not because they think they can overcome, but rather because they have a God who can overcome the wicked. The reason I want to end here is because I really believe that this is actually the call of the church. That this is the the role that God has called us from the very beginning to play, uh, to make known the coming justice of God. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, they were given this command to to be fruitful, to to multiply, to fill the earth with others who are image bearers, to fill the earth with his glory, to, to fill the earth with culture, with music, with business, with infrastructure, all pointing to the glory of God. That was what we were meant to do. And yet Adam and Eve, they failed. God then chose a people, a nation, Israel, and he says, you are gonna be a royal priesthood. You're gonna be chosen and your role is to make my character known to the world. And yet Habakkuk is lamenting the very fact that they have failed at this job of making the glory of God known in the world. What Adam failed to do and what Judah did not do, Christ accomplished. He came to make the invisible God visible. He came to make the glory of God known that we might see it and that the earth might be filled with his glory. What's extraordinary about what Christ accomplishes in his life, death, and resurrection isn't just that we can now see God's glory coming, but he restores our vocation, our calling as image bearers, as people who are called to, to fill the earth with God's glory. You see, the good news of the gospel is not just a hope of a future promise of things being made right, but actually immediate ramifications to now be a part of the work of playing a small part of filling the earth with God's glory. God's comfort to those who cry for renewal, it also comes with a commissioning, a calling to go and make disciples of all nations to fill the earth with his glory. What a privilege we have playing a small part. And filling the earth with the glory of God because one day the knowledge of the Lord well it will it will cover the, the earth as the waters cover the sea would you pray with me our gracious and loving father we come before you again thanking you that Lord you have given us a prelude to your coming justice it is full of, of reminders of, of what is ahead for those who seek to walk in wicked ways a judgment that is thorough, a judgment that is terrifying. And yet, Father, we find our hope in the work of Christ, who has not only redeemed us, Father, who has who has taken the wrath that we deserve, but, Father, is also the one who has restored us, our vocation, our calling as image bearers in the world. So, Father, we long for the day. We long for the day when your glory will rush over it will be a tidal wave that comes over our city and over our homes and over our hearts. And until that day, would you, would you fortify us, make us strong in the hope that we have. Father, may we know your character. Would we know your glory and your holiness? May we trust in that alone. And Father, we pray that until that day, we might be agents of, of restoring of actually putting things back as they are to bring about reversal of wrong and revealing what is true and right and good in the world. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.